Welcome to FIA Speaks, a podcast at the centre of the futures, options and listed derivatives markets and the interesting people who work in them, run exchanges and regulate this industry. FIA's mission is to support open, transparent and competitive markets, protect and enhance the integrity of the financial system and promote high standards of professional conduct. Please note we have a lengthy disclaimer that I encourage you to listen to or read at FIA.org. But in short, this podcast is meant to be informative about this industry and should not be relied on for investment advice. And now, here's your host, FIA President and CEO, Walt Lucan. In this episode, we're honored to have the Chair of the European Securities and Markets Authority, or as we know it as ESMA, Stephen Mayor, to join FIA Speaks. Welcome. Good afternoon, Walt. Look, uh, Stephen, you have an impressive resume, I think, by any means. Um, you're the first chair of ESMA at its inception in 2011. You also were the head of the Dutch AFM, uh, dean of the business school and uh, economics at Maastricht University. Um, we have that in common, actually. I don't know if we've ever talked about this, but I, I went to the university, Maastricht University as well. Uh, when I was in college, I, w- I took a semester abroad um, from Indiana University, and we came over, and I, so I spent uh, six months in, in Maastricht at Maastricht University and had a wonderful time. It was, it was just one of the best opening uh, parts of my life. You know, it really opened up the world to me. And um, so I, I wanted to ask you, you know, how did you go from academics to, to become a regulator. I think that's an interesting path that m- people may not know how you went from one to the other. So it's very interesting that you were at Maastricht and probably we were there at the same time. 1988. Uh, I, uh, I arrived in Maastricht in 1987, so it must be uh, We may have had a beer time. together. I don't uh, know. We yeah. might have. But interestingly, Maastricht uh, is, is a, and for its time, it was really ahead of other universities in, I think, in Europe. Uh, by having a very broad and strong network with universities across the world, and and that is what I really liked about uh, about the place. The move to the uh, I, I I had an academic career, and so you know I wasn't uh, a true academic and doing the academic research and do all the tough uh, work on trying to you know do research, publish articles. But I knew also is that in the longer term, it, you know I I would like more to have a a, a role where it would be uh, closer, let's say, to you know financial markets themselves. There are commonalities between being a regulator and being a, 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 a academic in the sense that analytical capabilities are very important. Uh, and as an academic, you think around you know what makes markets function well, and obviously that is also uh, coming back in the role as a as a regulator, and also trying to be and and the importance of evidence. Uh, you you. You want to take decisions based on evidence from the financial markets. As a regulator, you need to do it much quicker uh, and faster than uh, than an academic. But there are some uh, commonalities. By the way, at the AFM, I, I was not the head. I was one of the uh, directors there and responsible for capital markets. So when you were approached about the job at ESMA, um, it was a challenging time. I mean, the, it was post-financial crisis. Uh, Europe was trying to build its capital markets, build this during the midst of post-crisis reform. What was it that really drew you to the job? What what sounded challenging that really want you wanted to take on in this role? 
So, you know, if you, if you look at the, the, the jobs I've had in my uh, life, there is, you know, there's quite some differences in the characters of these jobs. But, but I, there seems to be a, the consistent point around building an organization. So Maastricht University we referred to was a starting university. It was kind of a, the, most, uh, the youngest university in the Netherlands and it really had to build a reputation. The same holds for the Dutch uh, Authority for the Financial Markets. It was a starting securities markets regulator, and, and I was there when really the capital market side was you know, expanded and um, uh, regulation and supervision was starting to build up for the financial markets. Uh, and I think that is also the, has been very important at, at ESMA. What probably was a very, and, and, and to some extent still is a situation, is the a situation where you need to build a shop and but you already opened the shop and right. so at the same time that you need to develop the organization develop rules and regulations you also actually you know you need to deliver there is no time to prepare there was because of the financial crisis there was an urgency to implement uh, the reforms in response to the financial crisis uh, but i think it's been a, a a very good time in terms of making sure that the reform as a result of, of the financial crisis has been as implemented as uh, effective as possible without having a European coordinating body that would have been so much more difficult. I think non-Europeans forget that, that you were, like you said, um, you were building a plane while you were flying a plane. And it's 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 difficult because, you know, in the U.S. we implemented Dodd-Frank, um, but we already had a mature you know, uh, regulatory system here, yours was being built while you were implementing these things. I think that makes it exponentially harder for what you're doing. Yes, I, I can remember situations in the board and, and the board of ESMA is, is the, you know, is the collective of all the uh, heads of the, the national regulators uh, under my chairmanship. And I can remember there was so much pressure uh, to deliver and uh, that actually some of the rules were nearly actually written during these sessions which is of course a very complex situation to do it uh, together with such a big group you know it has become much more uh, in calmer waters now um, uh, but there was a lot of pressure at that time for sure. Well tell me a little bit about ESMA's responsibility some of our listeners may not know um, what ESMA's sort of jurisdiction is it is the top securities uh, and exchange markets regulator in Europe. But can you go into a little more detail about what the day-to-day responsibilities of ESMA are? So in terms of objectives, we have investor protection, orderly markets, but also stability as a main objective as part of the you know the, the mandate of ESMA. And that stability part is also reflected in work we do. So we put a lot of emphasis on risk analysis and data collection and better understanding uh, what is happening in, in financial markets. If you then look at the activities that we conduct as, at ESMA, it is, first of all, we are responsible for building the single rulebook in Europe and so making, that, making sure that we have the same technical rules uh, across the EU. So that is an important role of ESMA. The second one is making sure that the 28 national regulators apply those rules as consistently as possible as you are you know know very well you can have the same rule but regulators might might view them differently and it's our role as esma to make sure that the uh, rules are uh, are supervised in a, in a consistent way third activity is the risk analysis i just uh, 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 explained it is around collecting data we collect now much more data on derivatives markets on bond markets on equity markets 
uh, to improve our risk analysis uh, for the financial markets, but also to set certain uh, parameters for the financial markets to make sure that they uh, function better in terms of also taking the overall uh, market activity into account in the European financial markets. And finally, we do supervise a number, directly supervise a number of entities, credit rating agencies, but also some market infrastructures like trade repositories, the uh, data providers under, under MIFID, which help you know, uh, investment firm trading venues to uh, publish the data either to the public or to share it uh, with the regulators. And in the future, we also get direct supervisory roles regarding CCPs and benchmarks. Do you feel like the agencies for Europe are at the end game of what they're intended to look like? Um, if you look at sort of the arc of the European project, Europe is becoming more of the central focus um, versus the member states. Uh, do you feel that there's still an evolution for ESMA, that it will take on more authority over time? I know we just did a ESA review and uh, that looked at some of its authorities, but do you see this in a, in a long arc that ESMA over time will take on more authority and responsibilities? I, I think, first of all, this should not be about ESMA. You know, ultimately, this is around making sure that, that capital markets in the EU are, are successful, is that they play a more important role uh, in the financial system. And that goal is, is broadly supported. That is supported by, let's say, uh, private sector stakeholders, but also the public sector, the, uh, uh, the politicians, uh, but also the central banking community. There's this general uh, objective of making sure that capital markets play a more important role in the EU financial system. A better balance between banking and non-banking can make the, the system more stable, result in more competition. Uh, and I already, you know, the first indications on what is important for uh, the next commission, uh, further strengthening and developing capital markets uh, is an important part of that. And then automatically stronger, more important, deeper capital markets also need to have supervision that, that fits that more important role of a capital market. I think one u unique thing about the European model is its interrelationship with, with both Parliament and the European Commission may be a bit unique to the process that was developed long ago. Um, can you describe a little bit your relationship of how you deal with the Parliament and the Commission on, on certain things? And they have certain responsibilities where you take a second seat and at times you're taking a lead role and they may be commenting on things. What, what is that interrelationship? So uh, when there are uh, activities within ESMA that basically have a regulatory component and when it ultimately ends up in, you know, let's say legal text, then obviously there's the involvement of the, the, the Commission, uh, Parliament and Council. It is then the Commission that needs to uh, endorse those standards and subsequently there should be, uh, in some cases, there, there is the mechanism that there should not be uh, objection by either Parliament or Council. I, as a person, the authority is is accountable uh, to the Parliament and the Council, and so I am, you know, regularly I appear uh, appear in the uh, European Parliament in the Econ Committee, where I need to explain what ESMA is doing, uh, need to understand what the uh, wishes are of the Parliament regarding uh, financial markets, and so there is a, a very uh, intense and good cooperation 
with the European Commission, with the Council and, and with the Parliament. Of course, there are some areas which we do uh, in full independence. Direct supervision uh, obviously is something that is done in, in independence and that is really an ESMA responsibility. We can do that you know, very much uh, as, an, as an authority. And also all the work around making sure that the national regulators are consistent in their supervision. That is that is work that is really is belongs to the authority. Once it more goes into the direction of the single rulebook, there is more the involvement by the Commission, Parliament and Council. And we had a European election three weeks ago. It seems that there may be a bit more fractured and polarized uh, you know, members of, of the Parliament. How will that, if, if at all, impact ESMA's responsibilities in your job? I, I think it's too early to uh, say, you know, and, and I think that's really for, for the parliament, you know, they need to um, uh, start their work and they, they will give their, uh, their preferences for uh, the work of the authority and for, uh, for financial uh, markets. You know, I'm optimistic uh, that there will be, again, good cooperation with the European parliament. The European parliament has been generally very supportive of the European uh, authorities, of the European uh, uh, supervisory authorities, but maybe more generally on the European elections, I think what has been very good, and you know, whatever you say about the outcome itself, the fact that the participation in the election moved from 40% to 50%, which is quite a big step for you know for uh, the participation by voters, I think is a is a positive sign, and also the relevance of these uh, elections have really increased because you have seen that it also had in a, a number of member states repercussions for the national politicians, either when they lost a lot of votes or either when they had they were very successful, and so the relevance of these elections have, in, have increased, and I think that is really important message for Europe. Yeah, Americans should be jealous of the participation rate. That's that's really great that Europeans came out in, in those numbers. Um, one thing I, I think that was of interest, too, is the rise of the Green Party in, in Parliament. Uh, we heard uh, last week when we were in Europe about the, the ESG ad agenda in Europe and the, the Green Agenda for Finance. Uh, yesterday, this was a big topic at the, the meeting at the CFTC that you attended. Uh, talk a little bit about that issue and what ESMA's role might play in in the the green financial agenda that's happening in Europe and and why it's happening. I think a lot of Americans may not be aware of of what's going on in Europe in this area. Yeah, the uh, the integration uh, of sustainability risk and sustainability factors in the uh, European financial regulation and supervision is is now very pervasive. Uh, that has started to get more uh, more traction. I think interestingly, this is an area where especially the private sector has been saying we need to put you know we need to progress here. This is this has been an area where the public sector has been to some extent lagging behind the private sector, and it was also a committee uh, from the private sector saying we need to move on uh, sustainability issues. The, the way I look into it is, is I frame it as a very classical reasons why we need to look into this as, as regulators. First of all, we know that sustainability affects the risks in financial markets. It can affect the valuations of an insurance company. It can affect the valuations of, a, of an oil company. And therefore, the risks around sustainability should be reflected and incorporated into the uh, regulatory system. But also what we see is that there is an increasing part of the uh, investor community that want to select uh, investments that are green because they are willing even to forego some return uh, or even uh, incur some higher risk if they know that they invest in a, a sustainable uh, investment. And I think that is the important reason that we need to work on this.
Well, I want to turn to uh, clearinghouse issues, and, and this is something that uh, is very big for FIA, um, but making sure post-financial uh, post crisis that products get into clearinghouses and how they're properly regulated. But uh, Europe has been very active on this, and through its European Market Infrastructure Regulation, or as we lovingly call it, AMIR, um, have, have moved a lot of over-the-counter products into clearinghouses. Um, the latest revision of that law, AMIR 2.2, is looking at how foreign clearinghouses might be properly regulated, especially those that may have a systemic impact on, on Europe. So we are now at a point where that law has been passed, and it's, it's with ESMA now under its level two consultation. Can you walk us through um, those consultations? I know there's, there's one on whether, you know, on tiering, on whether clearinghouse is systemically important or not, um, also on how you might approach uh, equivalence determinations and on fees. Can you, can you give us a quick, quick uh, summary of what those three consultations do? Uh, maybe first, very quickly, and, and you introduce Amir very well, and, and you know the law, uh, the regulation uh, very well. It is a reflection uh, of uh, an improvement uh, from a European perspective of our equivalence, as you are very much aware. Uh, the current equivalent systems are systems where the ultimate consequence would be is that you need to fully rely on foreign regulation and foreign regulators. Uh, also, because of Brexit, we have accelerated our thinking uh, around equivalence. And so relying on foreign regulation and regulators will continue to be very important. But in some cases, and as you identified, when there are systemic risks, in those cases, you want to have better tools from a European perspective and making sure that the risks from a European perspective are, you know, that we have information on that. And, and if there is a concern that we can uh, address those risks from a, a supervisory perspective. The three consultations are indeed uh, on the issue of what determines whether a CCP is relevant from a systemic uh, perspective. And so that is around the risk of those CCPs. Can there be an implication uh, for the EU or member states of the EU? And that relates, for example, to the amount of clearing uh, in, in currencies from uh, in the European currency. It is the involvement of European clearing members. And so there is a range of risk factors uh, that needs to be taken into account to determine you know, whether it's a tier two, which is the one where there would be the direct application of EU law, and also the uh, tools for ESMA to, uh, to super supervise. There's also uh, a, a consultation paper on comparability. So even when a CCP would be in the tier two category and would be in principle directly under EU law and, and AMIR 2.2 would directly um, apply uh, to that uh, CCP, even in that case, it would be possible to rely on the home country regulation when it's comparable for those requirements vis-a-vis uh, -vis the, uh, the European requirements precisely to help, you know, avoiding fragmentation in markets and that uh, if it is, you know, if there is an opportunity to rely on home country legislation, we will do so when it's comparable. And finally, indeed, the, the fees are around this, you know, the, like normally supervision is typically funded by those that are supervised and that is a reflection of the third uh, consultation paper. And I know in the United States, the whole deference around Dodd-Frank is around um, the law that says that the U.S. or the CFTC should not regulate overseas unless it's direct and significant, I think is the, the language. Is there something similar in a, in a mirror that sort of directs you to help you define what is 
the Amir equivalent of direct and significant? Is there language in there that helps you define these factors of that has to be of a certain burden? The, the, the key uh, criterion is, is relevance from a systemic standpoint or likely to be relevant from a systemic uh, standpoint, either for the EU as a whole or for, for the member states. So that is in the legislative text. That is the overall uh, criterion. And then there are a number of, of um, <coughs> uh, you know, sub-criteria uh, to give direction on what, it, what, it, uh, what, what are the um, uh, composing factors uh, of that uh, relevance from a systemic perspective. Uh, so this will not be one measure, it will not be one quantitative measure. And I think it goes back to the point is that stability risks are complex risk and therefore also you need to uh, take all the risks into account before you get to your final determination. And I think this was raised yesterday at the hearing, but I think some people have been critical on the NASDAQ default saying, you know, that, that CCP almost went down um, are, are there similar requirements on domestic CCPs to make sure that we're protecting that? Does ESMA play a role on the domestic side, or is that really just a home country regulatory issue? And Or do you have some oversight of making sure they're in compliance with EMIR and, and the factors that they might consider? Yes, so the, uh, we do have a quite extensive role regarding uh, European CCPs that already predates AMIR 2.2, so we already have for a number of years. We have uh, colleges, and in all those colleges, uh, ESMA is, is present and, and plays an important role in terms of coordinating those colleges, uh, colleges of regulators. Uh, and also for some issues, you need to have, as a uh, national EU CCP, you need to have the approval from ESMA. For example, margining models are very important uh, in the world of CCPs. They determine uh, stability, but they can also be a source of regulatory competition and an unlevel playing field. And for example, if a local CCP in the EU wants to change its margining model, it needs to have also the approval from, from ESMA. So we do have a role, and under AMIR 2.2, this rule, role is expanded. And on more issues, there needs to be the involvement of ESMA before a, a CCP can move ahead. I think one thing I was struck by um, with ESMA is how how big its authority is, but how little its staffing is. I, I was always amazed at how much you did. We, we call that punching above your weight. Um, but I, I'm always amazed at how much you do with so little resources. What's, what is the sense of, of how much additional staff you might need and resources in order to get you where you need to be at your fighting weight uh, in order to do this job? So you're right, we don't have sufficient resource. I've said it systematically in the, uh, uh, in the past uh, years. The good news is of the, uh, of the review, of the ESA review that we have been talking about earlier is that in the, in the years to come, we will get in total 50% more uh, resource. It will still be uh, a relatively uh, you know, mos- modestly sized uh, authority, uh, but moving from what is it, 250 to uh, 370, I think is a good step. And so uh, that is a good basis to, to progress in the years ahead. So IOSCO is the international standard setting body for, for the global uh, securities commissions around the world. Um, right now, I think you're an observer. It would make some sense that you're a full member. What, what are your hopes of trying to get into IOSCO and having a seat at that table? It seems like you're an important voice 
with without IOSCO even uh, being a member of IOSCO, is there hopes that you guys might be a member of IOSCO soon? So no, I the, the key element for 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 ESMA is is that you know we are an observer to the board. Uh, we contribute fully to the debate, uh, and where it is very important is that we can give the message to IOSCO is to really keep working on global standards. A lot of the issues around fragmentations, issues around equivalence, the more we start from a common uh, rule base that is already available at an international level, the easier the whole process subsequently uh, will be. We have, we have seen it in, uh, in, for example, credit rating agencies where the standards from IOSCO were extremely helpful to make sure that then if these are available before uh, the various regions in the world start to regulate it, that they are available and, and it ends up uh, in, um, uh, in, in a much more common uh, rules across the globe and that you know, uh, reduces the risks of, uh, for example, market fragmentation. Um, we hardly ever uh, vote. Uh, I think with all the, uh, I think in reality, I've never been there when there was a vote. And so although I'm an observer, uh, you feel like a full uh, member. Yeah. No, you know, I would be. I, w- I continue to be humble, and I'm not. A, we're not a member, uh, but I would expect that uh, you know, over time, that becomes more and more relevant. The more we become a direct supervisor. I have to admit, I have a bit of a chip on my shoulder on this issue because the CFTC for years was an observer, um, and finally got its full membership um, with Chairman Gensler. So, um, I think you certainly deserve to be at the table. Um, I haven't mentioned the B word, Brexit. I think you may have mentioned it earlier. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. There's so many unknowns with it. But from ESMA's standpoint, and really after the the European Supervisory Authority uh, rule went into place, do you feel you have the tools necessary in case the unexpected unexpected occurs that uh, you might be able to help? I, I know we're planning as best we can for that event. Um, but you feel that you have the flexibility and tools to, in order to, to deal with some of the unknown outcomes from that event? What's important to realize is that, that Brexit is a negative event from you know, capital market standpoint. The, the whole objective of capital markets and what has been the objective of ESMA also is to integrate European capital markets, is to make them more successful, to make them deeper. Uh, and the fact that the largest capital market will uh, leave that system is obviously negative for European capital markets. And so uh, the the fact that the UK um, uh, will leave uh, will mean fragmentation of capital markets. That is not a reason to be complacent around this, but uh, we should you know we should realize the fact that the market leaves the single uh, rule book that there will be over time uh, differences in rules and regulation will develop. This will fragment uh, markets. And I think that is to say it's a sad event. It is a negative uh, event. In terms of <coughs> preparations, we have spent a lot of time on the preparations for Brexit, uh, probably uh, in capital markets more so than maybe banking and, and insurance. The role of the UK is even more skewed uh, in the direction of the UK. And so we have... We have looked into relocations of financial activity from from London uh, to the EU27. We have made sure that there is uh, that this is done uh, against proper supervisory uh, standards. Our overall assessment is is that the what we have seen, of course, it's the responsibility of market participants themselves to make sure that they are sufficiently uh, prepared. But that overall, the level of preparation uh, by the financial sector is is quite high. Uh, but there will be fragmentation. There will be some negatives 
uh, coming uh, from uh, uh, from a uh, from Brexit and especially a no deal Brexit. And for the no deal situation, we are focused on those areas where there might be stability implications. And that is the reason for ensuring access, for example, to UK CCPs, because we think there we need to help the private sector and reduce the risk uh, of a no deal Brexit for for the financial markets. So, Stephen, as you get towards the end of your term, I know you have two years left. Um, and it may be too early to talk about this, but what would you like to be remembered by as your time at, at ESMA? What would be your legacy? So, well, uh, it is much too early to talk about the um, uh, you know the legacy. There's two years ahead uh, in in the remaining time of of my mandate. A lot needs to be happening, especially the whole implementation of the. Uh, AMIR 2.2 and the ESA review, uh, and also Brexit will be important. Uh, and also, for example, the review of, of MIFID 2 and PRIPS, you know, very important pieces of legislation. And so they're going to be very important for the agenda of, um, uh, of ESMA in, in the years ahead. I think what is really, uh, ultimately, I think the success of ESMA is first, of, is, is, first of all, to what extent have we been really successful in integrating these uh, financial markets, in bringing the supervision of the 28 national regulators closer to each other, more integrated, um, uh, more consistent? Uh, and I think in, in that sense, the situation now compared to eight years ago is, is, is already uncomparable in how much more consistency, how much more important the direction is coming from, let's say, uh, a common European level versus vis-a-vis, uh, -vis, let's say, national, uh, local direction, local regulation. I think that is really the um, uh, very important for for ESMA to deliver. And finally, of course, the ultimate test is really: do we ensure that markets are stable and that investors are protected? Uh, and I must say, on the on the last point, especially, there is still a lot of work to be done. ESMA has done a lot of good work, uh, but ultimately, we should always be. Uh, uh, willing to go an extra step and to make sure that the end investor, you know, gets better service, uh, pays less costs, get a better product, uh, and there's still a lot of you know work ahead for uh, for ESMA and uh, securities regulators generally in Europe. I'd like to close where we began. Truthfully, um, I, you know, I, I was just reminded of the time I spent in Maastricht in the Netherlands, and I thought the Dutch people were incredible. Um, just in, just generous people funny, progressive, tall, a lot of tall Dutch people. Um, but, you know, I, I identify myself as somebody from the Midwest, a, a Hoosier, and somebody from Indiana. And I know you're a European, but you're also Dutch. Um, I'd like you to talk a little bit about what it is that you identify yourself as being Dutch. Um, you know, what are you most proud of? What are the characteristics for somebody who's maybe not from Holland? How would you describe to them what it's like to be Dutch? Well, being Dutch is always very difficult to because you're part of it. It's so difficult to uh, to realize how you're different. And I, for example, one of the recently I had a very interesting conversation with the uh, CEO of Euronext, uh, who is this, he's a Frenchman, and he decided to live for some time in the Netherlands. And so we have these conversations now, and then you only realize, you know, what is specific around the Netherlands. And so, for example, he told me that his kids had to do swimming lessons, but they have to go into the uh, swimming pool in full 
uh, with full clothing uh, to learn how to survive in the case you, you get into the water. Uh, you know, you fall into the water and you have all your clothing on. And I had never realized that that was a very Dutch thing and that apparently in other parts of Europe they're not doing this. And so it is always very difficult to, to judge your own uh, culture. Probably we're known for being very direct and very honest. Uh, I, I think I've toned that a bit down, moving from the national level to the European level. You need to be sensitive around these things is that, you know, and that might be perceived um, uh, differently uh, in other cultures. I think where, uh, where I try to be, uh, what is important for me is to be results oriented, make sure that we actually deliver. We're maybe not so ceremonial in the Netherlands and much more kind of mundane and, and, and down to earth. And probably that is also reflected in my personality. And direct. I've always found the Dutch to be very direct, but very pleasant and generous. So, well, listen, it's been a pleasure of, of mine to sit down with you today and, and talk through our, our episode of FIA Speaks. And we very much appreciate you coming here and traveling to the United States to, to be a part of our, our FIA uh, podcast. Um, thanks to our audience for listening. As always, we welcome your feedback, issues, and ideas at FIA Speaks at FIA.org. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you very much, Walt. FIA Speaks is brought to you by the staff of the FIA. Steve Adamski is our executive producer. Cameron Lane is our technical producer, with additional technical support from Craig Richardson. We welcome your feedback on these podcasts at FIAspeaks at FIA.org. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide investment, tax, business, legal or professional advice to any individual or entity. Unless specifically stated otherwise, neither FIA nor its members endorse, approve, recommend or certify any information, opinion, product, process, service, individual or entity presented or mentioned in this podcast. FIA makes no representations, warranties or guarantees as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the podcast's content. Reliance on the podcast content is done at your own risk. FIA disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special of consequential damages arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on or inability to use this podcast or its contents. Any commercial use, resale or redistribution of this podcast without the FIA's express written consent is prohibited. Copyright 2019 FIA. All rights reserved. For more information, visit FIA.org.